You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good morning and welcome to all our friends and colleagues in the room and online. I am Marcia Carlucci and for the last four years, actually since the inception of the Women Building Peace Council, I have been honored to serve as co-chair along with our moderator, Megan Beyer. It is fitting that we gather today in March, a month in which the U.S celebrates women's history, and the world acknowledges and observes International Women's Day. We are here to recognize four extraordinary women whose invaluable contribution to peace is an inspiration to us all. We celebrate their courage, their vision, and their unwavering commitment. These four women are from the Democratic Republic of Congo, Kenya, Syria, and Haiti. These women continue to advance peace by mediating conflicts with armed actors, building systems to holistically address the needs of marginalized women, youth, and persons with disabilities, training networks of peace builders, and adopting creative forms of trauma healing. The world needs the example of the women to learn how to yield to a different kind of power and influence, and one that carries us toward a more secure and peaceful world. Yet these women are not alone. Countless women risk their lives to create peace in their communities. This year, as in years past, the Women Building Peace Council and the USIP team has put out a call for nominations. From 42 countries, we received 150 nominations of women from civil society, women working on the front lines. The council then began the very difficult adjudication process that rendered our finalists and our single awardee. And so it is my privilege to introduce the moderator for today's conversation with USIP's 2023 Peace Builders, Megan Beyer. Megan is a journalist, a lifelong advocate of women's rights and gender issues, and co-chair of the Women Building Peace Council. Megan? Thank you so much. Thank you, Marsha, and happy uh, Women's History Month. And uh, if you listen to the UN last year with their report, there is some history that uh, we're not living up to what we should be doing for women and girls all around the world. But you know, sometimes it's those moments of difficulty that 
have us turn to action. And so there is some hope in that. And in fact, in the year 2000, there was some bad news as well, sort of like the bad news we just got from the UN last year. And that was a threat and an opportunity came to light at the same time. The threat was that suddenly there was this very obvious pivot on the battleground in the places where terrorism and conflict occur where civilians suddenly were obviously the targets. Notably, women and children were the target of the violence. At the same time, we were collecting so much data that the first impression, the first very obvious trend that came out was that when you integrated women structurally into the peace negotiations, into the peace process, that peace was much more sustainable and not by a little, by 50%. And so with those two things, the UN Security Council passed a resolution, uh, 1325. It was unanimously accepted. And there were promises made in that resolution, but it was only a resolution, to integrate women structurally into the peace and try to get some of that durability dividend that the data showed us that we would have. Because, you know, it was an appreciation of the importance of women, of what women do. You take out the women, you take out the village. The militias and the terrorists knew that. You put women in the lead on peace, and you have a stronger peace. You have a durable peace. And so, while it's a bad news, good news situation, it's a situation that clearly arises from a recognition that women are really the answer. And that's what you're going to learn about today with our finalists and our winner of our Women Building Peace Award. The stories of the finalists and the winner this year trace the geography of some of the most war-torn, conflict-plagued areas in the world. And we will begin in Syria. Abir, Haj, Ibrahim, please join me. What began as protests aimed at Syrian President Bashar al-Assad in 2011 exploded into so many years of civil war with a virtual proxy conflict taking place in Syria between the United States and allies and Iran, the Islamic State, Hezbollah. Add to that 2023's earthquake and Syria has become a place of the largest displacement in the world. Internally 6.9 million are displaced with more than 5.4 million displaced abroad. Add to that, and I hope the numbers are right, you'll correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but you add to that the attacks in Israel and Gaza and, and all the tension and violence. It's unimaginable destabilization, so I'm setting the stage. Please let's watch this video before I let you have the opportunity to speak with a beer. I'm 
عمليه مدينه دمشق وسوريا صار في حرب ببلدي واشتدت مستوى العنف وكان عندي هم بس انه توقف العالم تقتل بعضها وانه نلاقي طرق ثانيه نتوصل فيها لحلول حسيت بواجب اني اشتغل اكثر على الحوارات بس ما كان يعني الهام كان من واقع ازمه هلا البيئه مثل اللي ماشي بحق الالغام وهي الالغام ممكن تكون لغم سياسي ممكن يكون لغم مجتمعي ممكن يكون لغم امني بخص حياه الافراد فالبيئه كثير معقده والضغط كثير قاسي وشده العنف كل ما لا عم تزيد بالمنطقه عبير فتحت مساحه للشباب للاحلام تجاه بلدهم قدمت الدعم والخبرات والموارد واشتغلت لتكون عم بتجيبها للبلد بظروف كثير صعبه نحاول نخفف شدة النزاع والعنف على المستوى المجتمعي يعني بنشتغل كثير على الوساطات المحلية بالإضافة لبناء القدرات الشباب والصبايا ليكونوا أكثر قدرة على التعاطي مع النزاعات بمنطقتهم ومحيطهم العدالة شيء أساسي لعملية بناء السلام بس بدها تكون معمولة بشكل مجتمعي لهيك أنا باعتقادي أنه العدالة هي شيء كثير محلي شيء كثير بخص العالم اصحاب القضيه، ما بخص العالم يلي يمكن ولعوا القضيه بوقت من الاوقات. ابير اتس يو ستارت وذ ليسننج ات لوكس لايك از ذات ريلي وير يو ستارتد؟ يس تيل اس اباوت يور ابروتش اند هاو يو وير موتيفيتد Um, it's all about active citizenship. Yani when you feel uh, that your neighbors are fighting, your friends are fighting, uh, people are holding weapons, uh, you might lose your house, uh, there's a uh, lot of conflict around you, you cannot do anything except to start a dialogue and to start doing things. And what came of those dialogues that we saw? There were uh, uh, so many output for the dialogues. It's according to the groups and it's according to the conflict areas that they are coming uh, from. So it might be um, uh, around thematic uh, issues related to the resources because we have less resources now in the country. It might be dialogues related to building trust the process. Uh, uh, with the uh, different uh, ethnic groups and it might be also based on political backgrounds. It might be coming like solution-based dialogue. So there are several kinds of dialogues that we operate and each one has its own objective. And what comes of that? What comes of that dialogue? Actions. Mm -hmm. The blah blah dialogues, <laughs> it's over. <laughs> Actions. No time for that. There is no time. And even the building trust process at the beginning of the crisis, it needed lots of patience, tolerance, listening, hearing, coming over our personal conflict and stepping inside an area where we have a common understanding about our vision to the country. So um, now there is no time to have like any kind of normal dialogues. Mm -hmm. It has to be a, a based on actions, and everyone is involved is taking that actions in, into the work that he's doing or she's doing. When we hear about the situation in Syria, it just sounds so overwhelming. Mm -hmm. is, um, is the dialogue process that you've initiated and been involved with, um, 
does that give people the confidence to move towards some kind of positive resolution? I mean, I almost wonder how you could have the faith and the hope to do what you do, given these circumstances. I will be surprised to see that the people have uh, the enough resilience so far, especially the Syrians. 12 years of conflict, COVID, earthquake, regional conflict, and we are still continuing. So that you cannot like say, I'm sitting home, I am tired, while you are uh, seeing that the people are engaging and they are coming, they are putting effort, they are paying from their own pockets money for transportation, which is so expensive in Syria, just to be engaged. And they want, uh, they want us to listen. And our duty is not only to listen and to do what they want. So it's the only bubble of oxygen yeah. that we could provide uh, for the people who were under uh, this conflict for so many years, including me. I need also this uh, bubble of oxygen yes. from time to time. We think of women as having the strengths of relationship and communication. I mean, it's sort of uh, the bottom line of the magic powers that we hold. And it seems that this peace process is, and this peace initiative is driven by that. What actions have come out of the communication and this dialogue that is the oxygen that have, have some traction that you have most hope for? Giving a more resilience and more hope uh, for people to continue, reduce the level of violence, um, um, asking people not to hold weapons against each other, bringing a common understanding about the future, um, acknowledgement and valuing the diversity in our community. We did not have the chance to listen uh, for each other before. We were like in a, um, islands, isolated islands. But um, unfortunately, there was something good in this uh, conflict where we could come together, listen to the Kurdish case, listen to the religious diversity, uh, bring north with east, with south, with west together, and to think and to have a dream. And we have the right to dream. And these uh, uh, dialogues give us the right to dream. And, and to it looks like it's mostly women. In, yes. the, in the video. Yes, it and, is and more easier to bring women to dialogue than men. <laughs> you think? <laughs> yes. And, uh, and I think that women have so much in common, uh, being mothers, for example, and the threat of their children being recruited uh, and, and by militias. And is that something that binds the women? And frankly speaking, there was an incident during the um, high level of conflict between uh, women uh, coming from uh, the coastal region and women coming from the inner region. Both women have different uh, political views, but both women came together just to try any effort to stop the war because they don't want more children and more families to be killed. So the women have this kind of peace, peace initiative. Sometimes, and it's a rare percentage, that they give arms to their children and they ask them to fight, but uh, not in the case that we met. 
I, I did want to make one note about uh, what happened the other night when you got your award. Mm -hmm. And we do have a woman leader at uh, the United States, Linda Thomas, Ambassador Linda Thomas Greenfield. Mm -hmm. And you had a, I know you had a private conversation with her. And uh, I just wondered how that went. Uh, actually, it went very good because deeply in my heart, I believe that there is something called women for women and women to women. So our duty is to support the women in all levels, on where, when they are fragile, when they are displaced, when they are in a decision-making uh, positions, making th things happening so they can take the right decisions, the peace decisions. And this is, I think, what you have been doing. And it's the same. So it's our duty all the time to support each other. We don't go against each other. This is like the biggest uh, mistake if a woman uh, do that. I love that. You're ending yeah. on sisterhood. <laughs> we're going to go now from the Middle East to the Caribbean. Our next finalist is uh, Dr. Marie Marcel Duchamp. Would you mind joining us? Uh, Haiti. She is from Haiti. Uh, it has a profile that's it sounds very familiar, really, to what's going on in Syria. The devastating 2010 earthquake, and then Haiti's socio-economic, uh, political and economic unrest over the past five years, including the brutal assassination of President Jovenel Moise in 2021. Armed gang violence, sexual violence, kidnappings, other crimes have destroyed the social fabric of uh, Haiti, in the city of Port-au-Prince, where gangs terrorize and rule over large portions of the population, women and children are particularly vulnerable. Despite it's everything, everywhere, all at once, like Syria, uh, peacemaker Dr. Marie Deschamps soldiers on, and we're going to see a little bit of your story before we start. My name is Marie-Marcel Deschamps. I'm from Port-au-Prince, Haiti. My center where I am located since 1982 is in the middle of violence and crimes and gangs. We are surrounded by 20 well-armed gangs and surrounding us, there's around 120,000 families who live there who need our assistance. Education for me is a priority, primary education, vocational education, and health and human development. Those are my four targeted areas. All those people can go through the gang's lines, the war lines, and come to us for a service. For me, it's already a huge impact. Kids from four years old to 15, 16 years old can come here and pursue their education. It's priceless. It's the right example of the success of a program. It takes courage, determination. It's a non-stop. And so you start and you have to keep on going. Even in a war zone, you can accomplish activities 
where you bring peace around you. Wow. I'm so glad we have that video of the Jeskio yes. program. Now, before you got involved, they hadn't had this 364 pillar approach, did they? This was your creation. Yes, indeed. Good morning, everyone. Yes, as a physician, I got involved in 1982 in the fight against HIV AIDS. And so I had the approach of communicating a lot with my patients. I do believe in in the face-to-face -face meeting with your patients. And it's like you got into in intimacy with them and you hear, you communicate. And from there, I was targeting many women because they were more at risk. Because in Haiti, it's kind of a polygamy, exists a lot. And we, we, I realized very early that the women were dependent on their partner and accept domestic violence and other gender-based violence. And I realized very early that I had to integrate more because they were asking for more. And some of them were even saying, doctor, I'm being treated here for, from HIV, but I have no way to send my kids to school. I have no way to feed my family. I do not have access to jobs. So I went to meet my staff. I said, we're going to create a school. And they looked at me like, she's crazy. And then I said, no, let's start there. And we created a primary school. And then they said, doctor, we would like to find a job. I said, okay, let's start working with vocational school. On the same campus, we find a way to find resources. And the PEPFAR program has been key because it allows us not to worry about the cost of the drugs. Because the PEPFAR program gave us the opportunity to have access to the drugs. So I had not to worry about the drugs, but I had to worry about the primary school, the vocational school, and also caring for the rape victims. And that's all it started. And from mouth to mouth, it spread out. And then unfortunately, like you said, in 2021, the president got assassinated. And with no leadership whatsoever, so gangs took over, and they used women as their weapon because they need to control sectors. So that's where we are now. It, it is estimated actually now in Haiti that they would have more than 100, 200 gangs because they are spreading around. There's no police, there's no army, there's no 911 to call, there's no way to report, so we are left alone. But amazingly, every day I leave home, my family is worried for sure, but I leave home and I go in that slum where there are so many gangs around, but at least they let me go. They know who I am. They recognize my car. And if they are barricades, they just open the barricades. They say, let her go. She's going to get you. So in a way, I'm very grateful that I'm able to offer this kind of services and have such a huge impact. And do you think that you have been safe because people know what you're doing and respect oh, it? Yes. Even these gangs. Oh, yes, definitely. The only thing there's what they call some territories. Mm -hmm. So you can't be dealing with, with gangs from another territory when they are fighting each other. It's mainly, I would say, an issue of poverty as well and lack of leadership in our country where we are left alone, where civil society has to take over and take actions. So women, myself, I realize very early that 
I had to work with the women, mainly the head of the family, to convince them that being together and working with me, we can change. And now, what is amazing is to see, beside all these catastrophic situations, the kids can have access to school in my area. But yesterday, I've heard that they were shooting by the campus, and they were shooting by the airport, and so all the patients had to run away, staff had to So the situation is tragic. Well, that's what I was wondering. How do they get to school every day, given this violence around them? It, it certainly reflects that they value what you've done, and they're going to risk their lives to try to get some semblance of order and catch that education that could mean hope. I think what you're saying is right is what happened, what do I say, how do I push? I think they seen me a model, and when a commercial sex worker come to me, I said, you know the difference between you and I is my level of education. I went to school. My parents insisted that I had to school. So they take it as a model that if they send their kids, they give them access to education, they see the future, they see it better, and women, we care about our children. We care about our family. We want them to do better than us. And so they will go through the guns, the fire, the gangs to make sure the kids go to school. But there are certain point of time where I said, please be careful. Do not take the risk. So sometimes we have 100% in class, sometimes 60%. So we need to do better to address the security. Without peace, there's no way the country can progress. We need to focus on what we do, what are the priorities. You know what I love is that you were saying before this program that you never thought of yourself as a peacemaker before. Yeah, that's the first time I realized yeah. this week that I'm a peacemaker. That's strange. You know, you take actions, you, you do your daily activities, you, you, you're sure you're convinced in what I'm doing. And I was, when I got the award, I said, that's fine, I'll let me go to DC and I will learn. And then, from day one, day two, I said, ah, oh, I'm a peace builder. <laughs> and it's amazing. And I said, this is what I'm going to bring back to myself. 62% of my 500 staff are women. So I'm going to go down, I said, women, we are peace builders. <laughs> and that's what we're going to do next and next and next. And promote it and expand the program of who knows, maybe one day Haiti will be able to have an institute of peace yes. and will be leading the program, learning from each other. And I realized that from Congo... I think we know who could run it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know yet. <laughs> from Congo to Syria and really Kenya, I think we are a lot of things in common. And the lesson we learned here, thank you, we are very grateful. We learned a lot from this meeting with you. Thank you. Okay, very good. Uh, so, our next finalist works to empower people with disabilities. She's actually our first finalist uh, who is a woman with disabilities. Hamisa, could you please join us? She had uh, polio as a child, and she chairs the Coast Association for Persons with Disabilities in Mombasa, Kenya. And she is committed to building a peaceful society and providing opportunity and security for all who work in Kenya. And her focus is to stop terrorists from Somalia, recruiting young men in her community of Majengo. And 
Hamisa Jaya has uh, supported hundreds of youths in starting their own businesses. Again, we're hearing this theme of education and training to create some hope in the future. And so we'll take a quick look at this video and we'll start our conversation. My name is Hamisa Azaja. I'm a woman peace builder from Mombasa, Kenya. Majengo is a cosmopolitan city with so many urban challenges and people from different backgrounds and also religion. It's a place where conflicts cannot miss. I started way back from 2005 to do peace work. My work goes direct to empowerment. Tangible income generating projects that enhance people's life. The resource center is getting out every year more than 1,500 youth, women, and persons living with disability with empowerment. They move on with different life skills that focuses on building their livelihood. As for today, I'm walking away with my machine and I'm going to start my own business to make my own capital and I'm happy. The work I do is coming from a disabled woman, focusing on transforming people from one step of being less to the other step of being better. Hamisa, do you think that maybe having a disability has made you um, sort of the person who would step up to give hope to others? Uh, thank you so much, uh, Megan, and uh, thank you everyone who is here. Uh, my disability was once a disadvantage mm -hmm. to me and to my society, and even to my family. But my disability today is a very big advantage and an opportunity. What I have done is changing what everyone was saying, I cannot, into the I can. And that's something women face generally uh, in the world is that daunting feeling that maybe I am not the leader, I am not the one who can do this. How did you feel when you got the letter that you had been selected? What did you think? I actually thought it was a scam. <laughs> Until I read it for the fifth time <laughs> and saw some names that I know that they nominated me. So then I called my son and actually wanted to make sure 
if maybe I missed some English words <laughs> that I didn't grab from school. So I told him to read twice and understand. And he was also confused and he was like, Mom, this is huge. <laughs> Especially that part that said, it will remain confidential until when we announce. I said, this is huge. <laughs> Can we call these people and confirm nominated you? <laughs> so we started calling. And these people said, yeah, we received a, uh, uh, the call for proposal. And we proposed you for this because we know you work. I said, really? <laughs> You think um, I'm, 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 I'm that person who will uh, go to US and say, yeah, yeah, that's what we think. So we decided after a few hours to reply. <laughs> Until when the response came up and said, now we are going to take the process on, then I said, oh, it's not a scam. <laughs> it's real. So you know what I find so interesting is both you and Marie seem to have what we kind of think of as the imposter syndrome, like, oh, it could not be me. And, uh, and yet, oh my God, what you do every day, you should get this attention and more. Uh, what do you think this does for people with disabilities? Actually, first, before I go to the rest of persons living with disability, I would say, to me, this is huge. This is very huge. I would, uh, people say all dreams are valid, but this one, I didn't dream it. it. I didn't see it coming. I wake up every morning making sure that I have supported as many people in my area as possible. But for someone all the way from USIP to 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 ad identify, recognize, and even say, now you're supposed to come for this award, I had never seen it coming. So it is huge to my community. It's huge to my family. It is very huge. Uh, to the rest of the disability fraternity in this world, this is a platform of recognition that it's something that I miss words to describe. Because I know even USIP have been nominated women, nominating women every year, but they've never given it to a woman with a disability. And this being my first time and my f the first woman to have received this, I feel like flying. <laughs> oh, it's so great. Well, you're not flying yet. We have a few more questions for you. Um, Tomorrow. <laughs> Tomorrow, yes. I wish I'd actually, um, we'll get into more of this later, but tell me about um, any transformation all your efforts has, uh, has put out into the world uh, or, or an incident of transformation that your uh, work has has created in uh, in Kenya. Um, after realizing that uh, we cannot have peace as uh, persons with disabilities, 
uh, many of our youths and women are being lured into violence extremism, uh, radicalization, uh, issues of drug and drug abuse. I realized that we need to, 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 to reach further to the rest of the community so that we can uh, give economical empowerment so that we can transform them from who they are to some people who are better in the society. And this is where I came up with an income generating project for the youth, women, and persons living with disabilities so that we can all be transformed. Because if we leave them behind, we are still not in an environment that is conducive to be peaceful. So we decided now we will involve everyone, everyone in my region that is being lured into these activities. So this is why we began the income generating uh, project. And in fact, we, the first transformation we did was uh, uh, to change public toilets into income generating uh, projects. I know everyone had not thought of this, but um, uh, I usually say I had a dream, and uh, uh, my dreams become best when it is very, very early in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> and this is where I dreamed. I said, we have public toilets, but of course, we could change them and give them to youths, and they become employment. So. I seeked, I knocked some doors of the embassy. Then one of the embassy agreed, and uh, they came. They gave us some funds. We we did renovation of the public toilets in Mombasa, and then uh, we we hired we hired the youths who would do cashier. Some would transfer funds. If you want to to take bath in our project, you you will pay ten bob. If you want to go to for a long call, you need to tell us what you're going to do before. So you pay for what you're going to do before you go do it. So you pay 20 bob. Then if it's short call also, you also pay uh, 30, 30 bob. Because um, then we'll buy detergents, we'll buy uh, tissue papers, we will buy uh, toiletries so that and others will be washed. So we started with 12 young people and also uh, some three women with disabilities and also some four uh, youth with disabilities. And uh, now they are more than 400 in that project. And also the supplies of the detergents also come from the vulnerable groups. So yeah. we have taught them how to make liquid soaps. We have taught them how to go and purchase uh, the toilet papers uh, so that all the toiletries come from the groups. So each group will be supplying us for six months, six months, six months. So we have a long period of getting other groups being transformed. So even supply chain strategies, yes. and it's all creating hope, empowerment, and so you can see how hard this was for us to choose among so many amazing women like this. And now we're, we've come to our selected candidate, 
our 2023 Women Building Peace awardee, Petroni Vaweka, if you could join us. And um, Petroni is from the Democratic Republic of Congo. She grew up in the once peaceful Ituri province there. And today it is a humanitarian catastrophe. National armies, local militias, gangs, burn villages, seize prisoners, blight the land. Uh, companies uh, uh, and gangs attracted by minerals, uh, valuable gems, natural resources, uncontrolled logging, uh, stripping forests into moonscapes. It is a place that appears to have uh, no hope at all and incredible violence. Living day to day is a challenge. Uh, overall, Ituri's conflicts have uprooted more than 1.7 million people, fully a quarter of the province's estimated population. And before we view the video, a little background. She has said that her peace-building courage is multi-generational in her family. And she tells the story of her grandmother going out to farm one day from the village. And suddenly a huge leopard confronted her. And this was in the days when in Aturi, that was the big danger, a leopard. The leopard was snarling angrily. Slowly she bent her knees to lower the hoe and knife. And she, she told uh, Petroni, I began to talk to the leopard. I looked straight in his eyes and I kept my voice calm and even and I told him, Leopard, you and I, we are doing the same thing this morning. You are looking for food to eat and I am going to my field to grow crops for my children. Let us not disturb each other. We have nothing to fear, you and I. And the leopard went away. So despite her fear, her grandmother showed only calm. And you will hear that that is exactly what Petroni does. She has driven or sometimes even walked into unprotected <clears throat> deep forests ruled by men with guns and grudges. She has negotiated ceasefires, freed hostages, and saved lives, standing up to commanders of some of the world's most violent militias. And it was her children who, told, who encouraged her to do it. So let's take a look, and then we will begin our conversation with our winner. Je m'appelle Vaweka Petronilo et je viens de Bounia, dans la province de Lituri. Je travaille sur toute la province de Lituri et même sur tout le pays. Dans mon travail, le thème que j'utilise jusqu'aujourd'hui, c'est la cohabitation pacifique. Que les gens sachent régler leurs conflits en amiable et puis la cohésion sociale 
pour que les gens puissent se mettre ensemble pour se développer. Il y avait euh, la guerre entre les Hema et les Lendou. On tuait les gens du matin au soir. Tout le monde était, et ils ont fui chez eux. Et, euh, je ne pouvais rien faire que d'essayer d'arrêter cette guerre-là pour arrêter les tueries des femmes, des enfants et de toute personne innocente. Elle était la seule femme qui devait aller retrouver les groupes armés dans leur cachette, là où ils habitent. Mais elle n'avait pas peur. Elle devait aller parler à chaque membre des groupes armés pour qu'ils déposent les armes. Et remis la justice, les écoles ont repris, les églises. Les grands problèmes que je rencontre, c'est avec qui n'aiment pas la paix. Ceux qui donnent l'argent pour les groupes armés pour qu'ils puissent se battre. Ce sont des personnes qui ont toujours cherché à me tuer. Quand votre case brûle, vous n'allez pas laisser votre maison brûler. Vous allez essayer d'éteindre le feu. Et moi, ma vie, c'est d'essayer d'éteindre le feu, d'éteindre la guerre et d'éteindre le conflit. I love that metaphor about a fire, and you just have to stop it. So you were working for Oxfam, and it was your idea to use this approach. <clears throat> when I worked for Oxfam as a humanitarian, it was uh, to help people in displacement people's camps. You know, if people get displaced, then they are sitting under their tents and there is no water because they left their village. There is no water, there is no food. So Oxfam had this program and I was the person who was responsible for this program. I was the one who has to bring the water uh, to this environment and also to help with hygiene because, you know, if you're a displaced person, then you don't have anything to wash yourself with. And I remember that my first assignment as a humanitarian, I had to go uh, through the Hima territory and the Lendu uh, territory, and they were in conflict. Now, how did I do that? Uh, you know, I went uh, through the territory of the Hima, and uh, they said to me, well, if the enemies are going, uh, uh, if the humanitarians are going to pass through their territory to go to their enemies, uh, well, then we cannot let that happen. And so they asked me, well, Petroni, can you help us to reconcile uh, these people so that humanitarian aid can be channeled? And I have never done something like that. And so I started to reflect. I was I was talking and working together with the chief. And uh, at the end, he said to me, OK, the humanitarian aid can be channeled through our territory. Um, and uh, then uh, my boss said, well, Petroni, can you not work for peace? And I said, no, look at what's going on around me. People are killed. I have children. Uh, how do you want me to go to war? And at that moment in time, 
uh, the care, uh, the, the war separated me from my husband for seven years. I didn't know where my husband was, and my husband didn't know where I was with the children. So those are things which happen during war, and it took me eight months during eight months i said no 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 i'm not going to do this and at the end my boss said to me oh petroni i really think that you can do it if at the end i asked my children i said to my children this is what they ask of me and i thought that my children would say no 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 don't do this I left the decision to my children. If my children had said no, I would not have done it. But strange enough, the children said, you know, mother, I think that you can do it. God is going to help you. And when the children said that, then I was proud. I said, okay, I'm going to go. And then I started out very slowly, and here I am today. Wow. So, um, well, those children had confidence in you. <laughs> um, what is it like? What how, Are you like your grandmother appealing to the humanity of a leopard <laughs> when you're talking about, uh, when you're trying to do these negotiations, when you're advocating uh, for peace in these very dangerous situations? Yes, I think that what my grandmother told me stayed with me. And when she told me this story, I didn't know at that point in time how it's going to affect me. But later, when I was in a scenario of danger, when I was facing armed men, then I was thinking about what my grandmother told me in the days. And you know, uh, there were lions, there were leopards, uh, there were elephants which could run over me. And so what is the attitude which I have to have to face these dangers? And how am I going to react faced with these militias? And I think that to bring about peace, you have to transform yourself within yourself. I was not like you see me today. I was in, I was getting angry, you know. I was boom, boom, boom. I didn't have this patience. Uh, I, you know, uh, when I waited for somebody and a person didn't come, after a few minutes I left. And the first step I undertook was to change myself. And that was the most difficult thing, because you have to say no to what you liked in the past. You don't have the same choices in your life, because you know if you work for peace, that is very difficult, because you don't eat when you want to eat. Sometimes I am not eating for four days. You have to do lots of sacrifices, and uh, it made me become very humble. You know, I was an unarmed woman facing armed men. Why is war continuing? Because the whole entire world thinks that war is the solution. But then, after all, we, th we see that war is never the solution. You have the guns and the bombs. And on the other side, you have the same thing. And people are fighting. I understand, and I understood that on the other side of these weapons, if you have 
peace within you, you will win. And this is what my grandmother taught me. You look the danger right in the eye and then you are peaceful within yourself and you make peace and this is how I won but sometimes it was very difficult I had to work on myself I had to humiliate myself facing the danger but I was always the winner <laughs> so you said something when you received your reward the other night and I think we need to listen to you because you were the experts in peace building and you talked about the uh, how the rich minerals, gems, forests of Ituri, your beloved Ituri that you grew up in that was so beautiful at that time when you grew up and how that has become the reason for so much of the conflict in, in uh, Ituri now. And you, you proposed a, a peaceful unwinding of that. Yes. When we grew up, we knew that there was gold in our grounds and other minerals, but later on, it was discovered that, especially in uh, Ituri, in uh, the DRC, and in the east of the Congo, there are so many minerals, extraordinary many minerals. Uh, you have the feeling that all of the minerals of the world are in our ground, uh, your cell phones. You know, the minerals in your cell phone come from us, from our grounds, your laptops, uh, your electric cars. Uh, there are people who are uh, also manufacturing bombs and uh, all of these minerals uh, which are used to do all those things are in the ground and there are probably some minerals which have not even been found yet or discovered yet and you know it is because of money and everybody needs the minerals right so uh, there are thieves, uh, thieves are coming uh, to uh, steal uh, our minerals and they kill. There are so many weapons which are circulating in my province. And you know, I uh, work with the armed groups and uh, when we work on disarmament, uh, then we ask them to uh, give, hand over uh, the, the weapons and they do it. Once I was a political authority, I was a governor, and so um, instead of giving the weapons back to uh, the United Nations or to the government or to the military personnel, they came to me and gave me all of their weapons. They were at home uh, in my house. And, uh, you know, uh, I know that there are weapons uh, which came from the U.S., uh, from Russia. Uh, these weapons come from all countries in the world. And so what is happening? Uh, these young people, they dig for gold and for minerals. And those uh, who need these minerals, uh, they exchange the minerals with guns, and then uh, they rape the women, they kill the people, and so uh, I 
use this stay here in the United States to say, well, you know, uh, look, the United States is a, it's a huge power and they also need these minerals. Uh, can they tell the whole world to open a free trade market for these minerals? Um, so uh, that uh, the young people don't need uh, their guns anymore, uh, so that one can, with a free trade agreement, buy those minerals wherever uh, you need them in the world. And so you could buy them, just like any other good, so uh, that the population can benefit from it. That way, we could have a better life for the people who live in our countries. Uh, you know, in the beginning, I didn't know. I thought that it was a conflict between ethnical groups. But after I worked on this, uh, I saw that it was because of the minerals. Uh, and uh, the neighboring countries, they have their own visions. And it is so strange. Uh, the international community and even the American government, uh, they prefer to work with the thief than to work uh, with the country that has the minerals. You know, uh, in, it's a little bit like the lake with the fish. Instead of coming to fish, uh, you are going to give money to the thief to come and steal the fish from our pond. That's a little bit what's happening. Uh, and I'm wondering why, uh, if in this pond there are fish, just come to the pond and fish yourself instead of sending thieves who kill and then uh, who, fish the, uh, who fish for you. In your name. And you know, we have this wealth of minerals in our grounds. Uh, the whole world needs these minerals, but it, this should be distributed in a fair way and it should be marketed on in, in a free trade agreement like it is done with other merchandises in the world so, and without people having to die. I would have voted for you in that <laughs> okay. <laughs> so you have created something called the Foundation for Durable Peace. Is, is this free trade agreement a part of that? No, no not at all. Uh, because it was after my work as a humanitarian where they told me that I sh should work on peace building. And so this is the first NGO which I created. It was the Foundation for Sustainable Peace. And at that point in time, I was convinced that the problem was uh, the problems within uh, the ethnical uh, communities. And I started working with the communities. I, I, I told the armed groups uh, to hand uh, me the weapons. Uh, but I did not have the vision uh, that uh, this was a problem of the wealth, but it was only later when I was looking at uh, this accumulation of weapons, and I saw that these weapons came from everywhere. And when on an international level uh, I saw uh, that the international community, they prefer our neighbors who don't have uh, one drop of gold or cotton, and uh, then uh, the world says that they are the first producer. And that's not true. We have the cotton, but since uh, uh, they come and, uh, and are thieves and they come and rob us, uh, they think that they are the producer but they don't have one drop of gold. Everything comes from now. Uh, maybe later on they will find some mines in their countries, but up to this p moment in time, it is in our grounds. 
And I had my eyes closed in those days. I really thought that was an ethnical problem which we had. Uh, and then later on, my eyes opened wide. Uh, and the armed groups told me this. And the armed groups said to me, you know, uh, the problem is because, you know, they were talking to me. They looked at me as a person they could trust. They told me uh, they give us uh, money and then we give them uh, gold and then um, uh, there's a problem. The people who give the money, uh, they want to have something in exchange. I also would like to, say, to add something here. When I was governor, uh, that this wasn't the case. But today you have armed groups. They are working in these mines, but the mines belong to the Chinese. You see, you see these mines are on our ground. And the, the armed groups, uh, they are in charge of these mines, but the mines belong to China. So this is very strange. And we have to open our eyes. We really have uh, to understand. And we have to find a solution with the minerals. If we had a free trade agreement, then it would be clear. It would be fair. And one could buy the quantity one needs on that market uh, because you know they are sold uh, more at higher prices than what we can offer has been ground level coping with the uh, effects of all this violence and disruption and and you have had the opportunity of uh, sort of extrapolating from what was going on the ground and then having an epiphany about the bigger picture and I want to open it up now to all of you uh, to s sort of exchange a little. And I want those of you in the audience who may have any questions to please join us. Um, and, and particularly with those of you up here, our finalists and, and, uh, and Petroni, to think about are there some collective lessons? Are there some commonalities that you see? Are there... Um, are there things that we can learn from the experience of all of you being in similar environments, really, but all over the world in different places? Does anyone want to start, Marie? Yes. When you look at it from Africa to Middle East and Caribbean, we are all dealing with a common issue, which is violence. It's like if the world is focusing more on war than uh, probably even investing more in going to war than in bringing peace. And women, we are trapped in this policy Then, fortunately, this institution will try the best to change the dialogue and make them understand instead of investing in war, let's invest in bringing and building peace. Yes, and that is a conversation that I think every nation has. Uh, when, when you look at a cynical peace table, and the data shows that this is a phenomenon when you have no gender equality, it can be reduced to a division of the spoils of war and seen as through that lens. But when you add the women, they take the lens we have heard about so vividly today the lens of the family and the community and the economy that keeps families thriving 
And that's why the piece is more durable. You were about to say something? Um, yes, I have learned. And um, it's actually like this in each community, there is something going well. And inside each person, there is something, there is a positive need. And women and peace builders in general need to discover these uh, uh, things that are coming well in each of our communities. There is a champions for peace, and inside us, there is a goodwill that we need to discover and work around it. Okay, now, there must be somebody who has a question, one of our finalists. Over here, yes. Can someone bring mics uh, to these two individuals? And we'll, we'll take the question from the one who gets the mic first. Your name, please. Hi, my name is Contessa Bourbon of Queen Contessa Bourbon Foundation. I'd like to ask Ms. Petronil, which countries do you want uh, to have free trade agreement? And how would this benefit mine workers in Congo? What country? Well, as far as I know, technology right now needs the minerals that we have. And that's, that technology is used by all countries, any country that wants to evolve. What country exists that I could mention that doesn't have cell phones and doesn't have gold? What country isn't thinking about electrical vehicles and those who want to go to war? What country doesn't need uranium to make its bombs? And that's how can I say this? The challenge that isn't just the concern of my country, but really should it concerns the world. How to come together? You know how divided the world is, how many wars there are. That's why each power comes and takes for itself. Perhaps we could come together, a single market. But my country, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, should define in its policies how to interact with the various powers and how to organize this market. Unfortunately, I don't work at that level. And I'm under the impression that I wouldn't dare say this because these are uh, people at higher levels, but I would say that the international community and the Democratic Republic of the Congo need to think about this. I think the time has come to begin. I think there has not been that reflection. Otherwise, there would be small advances, discussions. For example, if that existed, the Democratic Republic of Congo and Rwanda and Uganda would not be attacking one another or pinching one another, it's because they haven't realized that there might be a way. There might be a way through dialogue, through diplomacy, to find a, a path. It's a problem that to this date has not been broached positively such that this doesn't lead to death. That's all I can say about this, that at my level, I have made 
uh, I've seen this situation, but I am not at the level where these decisions are made. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Your name, please. My name is Parwasha Hassan. I'm from Afghanistan, and I'm working as program director with Minas List. Um, I must say that I'm so fascinated by all the discussion this morning and your stories. Um, Patronoli, I think your grandma's story will stay always with me. This was very uh, touching, uh, listening to all of you. Um, my question uh, is to um, Haji Brahim. Um, you mentioned regarding uh, women uh, and um, their unity in Syria. I, my own experience from my background is that uh, the conflict fragment the societies and women are also not uh, separate from the rest of the society. Uh, so I like to know what keeps uh, women in Syria glued to each other. What are so special that keep their unity together, uh, which is very much important. Um, and I also have question to um, um, sorry I forgot the name, Madam from uh, Marie uh, uh, Marie from Haiti. Yes. Yeah. Um, you spoke about like you have been respected by those uh, gangs and groups uh, who are in conflict. Um, uh, as uh, Haji Brahim mentioned before, like in every conflict, uh, there is uh, something human in the person which is about peace. Do you see there are some values that they, because of your work that you are doing, they still esteem you and respect? Uh, and that is a potential for peace. Okay, you think Abir will answer her question. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Uh, there's two main factors that helps uh, the Syrian women come uh, together e more easily than uh, the men's. The first, their losses. Women, they don't want to have more losses for other women. And that brings women together on the community level. The second, the Women Advisory Board in, uh, with the Office of Special Envoy. The interaction of bringing um, um, track two women, the middle class women expert in peace building into the international forums where there is a peace negotiations was one of the successes that we managed to do. And this is because of the great Syrian women not me, I'm not included actually, they did a huge work and advocate to bring the women voices on that level up of platform. And they were so engaged with the community. So it was like bottom-up approach where we worked in uh, with women uh, who have these losses, traumatized, and to ask them what they see uh, is the best chance to overcome these losses and the Women Advisory Board, who also have a lots of uh, inputs in the Geneva talks where uh, the Syrians were coming together for a peace talk. Yes, thank you for the questions. Regarding, guess, regarding Haiti and the work I'm doing, I think we respond to their needs, and not only their needs of the gang, but of the community itself, of the women, of the children, of the youth and of the authorities of, or the leaders as well. So they see our work as an opportunity. And I think not only that, the communication that we establish with the staff 
and the field worker on the field, they are listening to what we have to say and what we are doing. And I think that's probably what's missing, the dialogue and communication, making sure we understand each other that we are not there for war, we are there to bring, to respond to their needs. And being a health institution, a major health institution in the country also, we are well known for the work we've been doing for 40 years now, and they see the impact. Are there any other questions? And we'll, this will be our last one, unfortunately. We're wrapping up. And um, if we can get a microphone. Thank you. My name is Stacy Shamber. I'm from the International Civil Society Action Network, or ICANN. Thank you very much for all of your remarks and being here today. And congratulations to all of you. Um, I think it was in the video um, profiling Petra Neal when you said that one of the greatest challenges is speaking with those actors who are funding the armed groups. And I think across all of your contacts and all of the conflicts in which you work, there are people who have a vested interest in the conflict. So my question is how can the international community best intervene or best support you to intervene in trying to bring them to the table and do the piece that you Well, do. you know, Hamisa had sort of referenced that, I think, so I'll let you start and any others who want to uh, chime in on that. Hamisa. Uh, in many of the, the ways that uh, we can stop war, many other times that uh, we have three things. We either need to come together on the table without any cards below the table, put all our cards on the table. We either agree, disagree, or agree to disagree. So that all this can be put to a stop. And I, For think example, I think she is also asking about what are those interests and even monetary possibly, but the outside, uh, you're talking about the outside influencer influences that are creating such violence on the ground. How can they help to mitigate the influences from outside the community, but beyond your peace uh, efforts on the ground? Okay. Uh, people who are outside that want to intervene into whatever uh, we are doing, it's to direct, come, and support our work. And you know what? We're going to have to end on that. <laughs> and I'm very sorry, and I didn't mean to interrupt you either. But uh, this has been an amazing conversation. It is the, you have seen now, the living representation. Would you like to say one word or two? OK, go ahead. You. Very quickly, I think that those who are on the outside, first you have to begin by looking or trying to understand what's happening far away from where you are. What is happening in Syria? What is happening in Kenya? What is happening? That's what has to come first. 
And when you know, then you can better understand. And then read the reports. There are many reports by humanitarian workers. There are reports from MONUSCO, the UN mission that is on the ground. There are reports by experts who go do research. Read these reports. You will get a better understanding. For us, for me, we need to support women. Whatever the external reasons, but if the population has this resilience, support us such that women can find her place at the negotiations table so that women can talk. They have their vision. They have their way of going about things. Women think with their heads and their hearts. Support women, and we will all win. Nobody can say it better than that. Thank you very much for joining us. The Women Building Peace Council appreciates your support. And we will look forward to seeing you next year. And we will be in touch and connected to our finalists and Petroni throughout the year here at USIP. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts. Thank you.